Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Long before the COVID-19 pandemic was on anyone's radar, and way before the murders of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Tony McDade, and Breonna Taylor, Michael Lewick Troms was planning on driving his Basseum across the country with five displays, one of which is called The White Cancer, America and its Ku Klux Klan. Today's white nationalism resurgence is even more clearly seen in the light of parallel and foreshadowing historical events, like the second wave of the KKK in the early 1900s. As founder and director of Trace's Center for History and Culture, Michael Lewick Troms, born and raised in Iowa, knows the people of the heartland from the inside, for better and for worse, and reflects their reality using the tools of his PhD in history. He joins us today via Zoom from Germany. Michael, thanks again for joining me so soon. It was just a few months ago we were talking. Welcome back to Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. So it, it's been pretty recent. I hope people did listen to the broadcast that we had back in mid-April, April 18th. We called it uh, Not Our First Pandemic Rodeo, 1918-1920. Since then, the shutdown has continued much longer than many people would have hoped or perhaps feared. And so are there any follow-ups you can give me, Michael, to parallels, perhaps? Maybe it's the same thing happening or differences happening from what happened back in 1918 and what's been happening in 2020 with respect to the pandemic. Yes. Uh, before I launch into that, I would say how glad I am to be back. When you say our last interview about the flu pandemic of 1918 was three months ago, I'm very mindful that so much has happened. It was probably in late March or early April that I called my housemate in one day and said, Jörg, look, and um, the numbers were 8,999 dead worldwide. That was early April or so. Wow. And now we're at half a million. In the United States alone, uh, over 130,000 fatalities from this pandemic. Unfortunately, there are takeaways from the pandemic of a century ago. And I'll just sort of tell a few of them anecdotally. In our PowerPoint presentation called The Killer, which is on our Traces YouTube channel to see for everyone uh, part one, which you've seen, and part two, which includes some of the more renowned victims of that flu pandemic. Uh, we show pictures of a streetcar. I think it was in San Francisco. It might have been Seattle, but anywhere on the West Coast, a man was actually shot by a police officer for not wearing his mask in the streetcar. Streetcars, of course, were considered public spaces, and they were crowded most of the time. So we know from the limited amount of documentation that, that we can find that already in 1918, there was some friction between those who didn't want to wear a mask and those who did. However, the photographs from that period show basically everybody wearing a mask. And I know a few other examples of people who refused to wear a mask. There is a picture in that slideshow of an African-American man going into a shop, and you can see his mask dangling in his jacket pocket, and he's well-dressed, 
striped trousers and, and nice shoes, sturdy uh, leather shoes. So he seems to be, be a man of some means. He certainly could afford a mask and have one in his pocket. It'd be really interesting for me to know, but we can't going backwards, who in the 1918 pandemic wore their mask happily, who wore their mask grudgingly, so well, and who refused to wear a mask at all. We know that there were people who were arrested and fined for spitting on the sidewalk during that pandemic. There were people who were also fined and had problems with the authorities for not wearing their mask. But again, one of our great uh, lamentations with that whole story is there's a, a, a lack, there's a dearth of a lot of contemporary accounts. What I find lamentable, Mark, you asked us now, how's the situation in Germany compared to the United States, but also Italy and Spain and Britain, Germany has very good numbers. The percentage of fatalities of people who died from the coronavirus compared to those who are known to have gotten it are much lower than other countries. Why is this? In Germany, there is a fringe. They even had rallies in places like Stuttgart or I think Berlin, maybe Dresden, protesting having to wear masks and the other restrictions on public life, but those are rare. Otherwise, you see people wearing masks um, in the trains in any case and going to seat at a restaurant on the way to the table. Um, people don't have to wear their mask at a table, the wait staff does. So I think one of the reasons that our death rate is so much lower is people are much more willing to wear a mask and not balk at it. I find it regrettable and somewhat mysterious, but it seems many of our compatriots have somehow melded the topics, quote, my freedom to not wear a mask versus the public good of wearing a mask. And it's too bad that, that this has become politicized because the more pronounced that it becomes politicized, the more the people dig in their heels and they don't want to um, change their stance either way. Those who are vehemently for masks and those who are vehemently against masks. Here, life has been opening up. I go swimming. I went swimming this morning. It's a great joy after so many months of not swimming. Trains are filling up again. People are flying now to the Mediterranean for holidays, although you know I wouldn't fly if I didn't have to. Uh, many people are opting, though, to take a vacation of summer in Germany. There are a lot more people taking bike tours, a lot more people going to the Baltic Sea Coast and the northern sea, the North Sea Coast. So daily life has changed, but it's reopening. And we don't have the recurring spikes that you see in Florida or Texas or California. That's what I can say to give you an update at the moment. You have been stranded, essentially, in Germany, not unhappily necessarily, but you were planning to come back to the U.S. because of the planned Busseum tour, the, everything that was in progress and all of a sudden had to be shifted. Were you prohibited from coming back to the U.S.? And are you allowed now? Do you have to come back through? Are they going to lock you up for two weeks in between to make sure you're not a carrier? What happens? Well, I certainly hope not. Just briefly, so the chronology was I had a health issue and I priced having that health issue addressed in Mason City at the hospital, coincidentally, where I was born in 1962. It would have cost a quarter of, of that price to fly back to Germany and go to the hospital here for six days. It would have cost to do the same procedures in the hospital in Mason City, Iowa. So I flew back and I intended to return March 24th. And soon after I was let, let out of the hospital, after six days of hospitalization and different tests, and they all turned out negative, I'm fine, I don't have colon cancer after all, et cetera, et cetera. President Trump, in effect, closed the flights between Europe and, North America, and the United States, in as far as the United States wouldn't let European nationals in anymore uh, who didn't have a U.S. green card, residency card, or citizenship. 
So in theory, I probably could have found a flight. There were Americans who live here at that point who hurried to go, quote, back home. I'm a dual citizen. I have citizenship in Germany and the United States, and I have a home here. I teach at the university, and I do other things here. So I opted to stay. Then I had an airplane ticket for May 11th after I rebooked, and then that fell through, and then I had one for July 4th, and my flight got canceled. As I understood the woman on the phone, out of 202 seats, either it was my class or it was on the whole plane, I think it was just my economy class, out of 202 uh, tickets and seats, only 26 were bought or occupied. Anyway, the flight got canceled, and they were going to route me over Munich and Timbuktu and the Polar North Cap to get to Kansas City. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I now have a ticket for early August. I have rented a hotel room at Frankfurt Airport the night before. My plan is to go the day before my flight to stay at the hotel. I'll get up really early, and I will simply park out at the United desk or the transit desk because they're partnering on these flights and these tickets, and I won't leave until they get me on, on a plane. So even if my flight, again, is canceled, I'll insist that they send me. We do have bus showings have been confirmed. Uh, we will be starting the bus tour, resuming the bus tour, August 14th, a month from today, in Prediction, Wisconsin, at the library, sponsored by the library and the local Chamber of Commerce. It'll be held down at the park on the river. The reason I'm mentioning this is we've had to be very clever, and we've had to reconceptualize our bus. In the meantime, since I've been stranded here, I and Christine and Veronica and sister Alyssa and others, we've been working feverishly to be clever how we adapt our bus to Corona. So we've now got railings, thanks to uh, Matthew at the Vanderhaeg's depot in Kansas City, that we can actually put the interior panels on the outside of the bus. No one, quote, has to go into the bus anymore who doesn't want to go in the bus, although the bookshop will remain in the bus. And we fund much of our tour through these book sales, and they're all related to the topics we talk about. So people can view the panels outside where they'll be hung. On days when a rainstorm is expected, we'll try to find an alternate either under an awning or in a mechanic shop or somewhere. We have shown the bus inside. In fact, in February, March, we showed the bus indoors exclusively until we got to Kansas City. Also, all of our films that are part of the bus experience are online. Our exhibit text is online. People can preview the films and read the text, but we hope they'll still come. They can stand socially distant from each other as they look at the panels on three sides of the bus. And we're also going to do a new thing called the listing circles. At the moment, many of us would like to talk about our current crises. There are many. You can just pick your crisis. But people also want to be heard. And so we're going to try something sort of a la Quakerism every top of the hour when we're showing the bus. So 10, 12, 2, 4, 6, 8. We'll have 15 minutes of, of quiet. And people can sit a meter and a half apart. And after we've had some time to think and to be quiet, then people are welcome to share their thoughts from that quarter hour of, of quiet. We ask them not to talk about them or, you know, the government or anything that's not personal, but rather to speak from their own experience. How's it been for them the last few months? What are their wishes going forward? How would they like to see their world being different? What do they think about the stories on the bus? What do they know of their family's experience with the flu pandemic or with the KKK or any other stories? So we're calling them listening circles. And we encourage people to sit and to actually listen to each other and not always have that verbal monologue in their, in, in their, in their own head, you know, what do they want to talk about, but to really listen to each other. And when it's their turn to also share uninterrupted and hopefully not 
directly judged. It's not a time for arguments or even discussion. It's just a time for people to share and for others to listen. So that's our big change on the top of the odd hours. So that would be 9, 11, 1. You can do the math. You'd be short programs by me. I'll also try to keep my comments to about 10 to 15 minutes. And then people can ask questions. And then we can have discussions about the clan of the 20s, race of the day if they want. We can talk about the pandemic of 1918, 1919, or up to day. Anything's game, and it's more of a discussion format. These are some of the changes that we're making to be relevant. We're hoping that there'll be such a hunger among people for cultural events and also to listen and to talk to each other that people will come. Uh, We're just producing a new sandwich board sign where we ask people to wear their mask, even if they don't want to do it for themselves, to do it for me, because there will be hundreds of people going around the bus over the next two and a half months. I I will be exposed to people who have the virus. I know this. I will be wearing a mouth shield, a mouth mask, sorry, and a facial shield. I'll have two levels of protection. But this I will do, not not because I'm a martyr, but it has to be done. So we're going to do the bus. Um, We'll try to keep the crowd always down to 25 or fewer at any time. Also social distancing, and we'll ask people over 25 per head to form a line. And then as people cycle out, we'll bring in new, new people. So I'm really excited that this fills a need that people have, I think. Who is Traces born? Explain the infrastructure that makes the Busseum possible. People see me because I have the biggest mouth and I'm most willing to talk. There's Christine. She's been with us since Christmas. We met at the Winter Solstice in Decorah, Iowa, outside over a roaring fire and, and a groaning dessert table. There are two sisters, the Guy Adir sisters, uh, Veronica and her sister Alyssa. They're very helpful. We have interns, Dimitri, who I've been working with this morning. He's back in his native Republic of Georgia, but he does our signage. He just created a new sandwich board that we're going to have to show people where to go, social distance-wise, etc. So there are different players. Oh, this morning I had a meeting with six people here in, in uh, Erfurt. This programming will continue when I return in November to Germany. So there are people who cycle in and cycle out. We have staff. We have money again. We'll actually pay Christine for the hours. We've not been able to pay her recently. Um, I don't get paid, but I do it out of conviction. Uh, the guided sisters are volunteers. Demetri gets a remuneration and, and is also an intern. And we have other people. So people come in different capacities different lengths of time. And without all those people, I couldn't do what I do. So in a way, they support me because they believe in the project. And what is the purpose, the intent of traces of Sporn? Is it uh, to subvert the system, to bring enlightenment, to uh, bring back the Christ? I mean, what? <laughs> why not? I mean, you could have a religious intent like that, too. What actually have you written into your intent? Because we do get public monies from time to time. At the moment, I can't think of any public monies that are financing the coming tour. But certainly we have in the past. We've had grants from Wisconsin, Iowa, Indiana, Nebraska, Illinois, humanities organizations. And so we cannot take a religious or political stance per se, and we don't. So this whole idea now with the listening circles, even that I say it's sort of tapping a Quaker tradition, I suppose I might be able to say that with public funds being used, but I wouldn't do it. I can do it now because 
I, I'm not account holding to anybody uh, along a you know party line or not party line. Changing the system is not a bad idea. We're not here particularly to foment revolution, although revolution might be overdue. What is true is there's a revolution going on by itself anyway, independent of the bus. When we conceptualized this bus, there wasn't COVID that we knew about. George Floyd had not yet been murdered. He was still walking around free and, and alive. Then we outfitted the bus in February, and soon thereafter, COVID landed in Europe and in the United States, as far as we knew. And Christine said, I never imagined when I said in December over, you know, roasted weenies and marshmallows and uh, winter solstice festival that these topics have become so germane. With the killer 1918 pandemic story, there are obvious links, but also with the cow wars. And I'm hoping that you and I, Mark, can talk about the cow wars soon. The cow wars are really about the social strife of the 1930s. Farmer desperation, the farmer's depression began 10 years before the Great Depression. So farmers were already hurting at the end of World War I, 1919, not like Wall Street that collapsed in 1929. But also we talk in that slideshow about the starving automobile line workers in Detroit. We talk about the deportation between a quarter and a third of a million Hispanic Americans who our government rounded up often in the night and sent to Mexico, quote, back to Mexico, although many had been born in the U.S. or citizens. We talk about the veterans army called the bonus army when 40,000 U.S. veterans occupied Washington. I think it was 31, 32. So that story becomes relevant again, because now you've got, what, 10 to 15% unemployment in the United States, mass unemployment. And then, of course, with the murder of George Floyd, our KKK story is more relevant than, than ever in recent past. So three of our five topics are completely germane right now, and we didn't plan this. It just sort of happened. So to not take the bus out is actually a crime. It's certainly an insult to the work of many people who made it possible to the sponsorship of John Vanderhaeg, of Vanderhaeg's Inc. and Spencer, to Joey, who today I called and pestered to print another sign. We have people who donate signs and tires and metalwork and a monitor for the, I mean, people have donated several tens of thousands of dollars worth of support. So to not show the bus is missing a historical moment and it's squandering what we have. And that's part of the consideration when I think about, do I come and risk my life? Do I sit in a tin can with wings? for nine hours going from here to Chicago to Kansas City. Well, thank you for making that effort, that uh, taking that risk is really what I'm thinking about. You've mentioned three of the five exhibits. You want to mention something about the other two, and then let's drill down on the, the white cancer. The first exhibit, looking chronologically, is called Kicking the Kaiser, Anti-German Hysteria, World War One. I had an interview yesterday with a nice young woman from the Capital Times, the newspaper of Madison, Wisconsin, and I told her that during World War I, there were serious proposals to put a fence around Wisconsin um, to protect against all those treasonous Germans living in Wisconsin. Of course, Milwaukee at one point was a socialist-run city. Beer halls and Turnerverein, the sports halls all across Wisconsin, it's well known. We've forgotten what happened to German-Americans across the whole country during World War I. Some were beaten. At least one was lynched, Robert Prager in East St. Louis, Illinois. German-Americans' property was taken away. Several thousand were interned in three camps in Georgia, North Carolina, and Utah. So we've forgotten this story. And one of the reasons it's really relevant is every fifth American has German ancestry today. If you take Hispanic Americans and divide them by Cuban Americans, 
Mexican-Americans and others, German-Americans are still the largest ethnic group in the country, still. Certainly in the 19-teens, it was by far the largest minority. So interesting question is, how do you take the largest minority and, and make them invisible? So the first of these five topics I find very interesting as a mental game. We do talk about President Trump's grandfather, who, like my great-great, came from Germany and later opened a hotel on the frontier, the Trumps in Yukon and the Lewicks in pioneer-era Iowa. So we talk about German-Americans, how they helped build the country, and then during World War I got hit in the head, and now German-American culture is mostly invisible. The fifth of the, of the five, I mentioned the other three already, is about bootlegging in Prohibition era. What's interesting is how these five stories all dovetail. The case study that we give were the German-American bootleggers of Templeton, Iowa, who were supplying Al Capone in Chicago, and certainly speakeasies in Omaha, maybe Milwaukee, I don't know, uh, Kansas City, maybe St. Louis, but they were running booze all through the upper Midwest, um, and the Klan in Carroll, Iowa, and other places would come and burn crosses outside of Templeton because these were German-American Catholics. And this does give us a nice segue to the story of the white cancer. One of our five stories is America's white cancer, the KKK, the second wave, the so-called second wave of the 1920s. Just briefly, I'll give a sketch, and then we can actually take these and dissemble this bit by bit. In the film that Marcus watched last night, because they said, Mark, watch this film, everyone can see on a YouTube channel that the Klan arose out of the ruins of the Civil War. The Klan sort of disappeared after the 18 mid-70s and was revived by a big cross-burning on Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, Thanksgiving Eve 1915. Plus there was the film The Birth of a Nation, which quoted the President Wilson as supposedly being pro-Klan. And this really got it going. During World War I, although we weren't yet in it, the writing was pretty clear on the wall, and soon we would be in World War I. But all issues of origin and race and grouping became very important. If you were a Hungarian-American or a German-American or whatever, all these things were of importance. In the 1920s, even after the war was over, the anti-German, anti-Catholic sentiment of the Klan helped lead to prohibition because German beer garden all over the Midwest and the rest of the country got hit in the head. They had to close. So being against booze was also being against mostly the German brewers. Kugel, Pabst, Hamm, Miller, which was probably Mueller at one point. So all these things are related. What's interesting for me, so women had just gotten the vote in 1920 in the United States, and the Klan in the 1920s supposedly had three million members. That's what the Klan itself said. But every sixth Klan person was a woman. And so on our slideshow, on our PowerPoint, this sort of an animated little movie, you actually see moving figures of the great Klan uh, rallies in Washington, D.C. in the 20s, and ladies' contingents, uh, ladies' auxiliaries were in hoods and, and masks as well. So this is really interesting that, you know, the Klan was an equal opportunity hater. And outside of the South, the fuel that really made those pistons run among the Klan in the Midwest, in the West Coast, wasn't particularly anti-Black, but anti-Catholic. And I find that very interesting. And that brings us to these topics I thought about while swimming this morning. Mark wanted to take this discussion deeper and wider, and we can certainly do that, because at some point, racism as an excuse or as an explanation doesn't work anymore. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. It, what is the roots? Because we say racism, but often it's bigotry of some sort. I've been to Rwanda. I've seen them places where the Tutsi were slaughtered. I, mean, I was in one place where something like 5,000, another place it was about 18,000 had been, it, it was a church where they had been slaughtered. And so that's obviously black, black. You talk about German versus Koreans, the prejudice that is longstanding and the enmity and, the, and even the slaughter, uh, slavery, etc. So I know it happens all over the world. And it's not just racism, but it is uh, somehow how we, die, how we draw circles of we and they. It's some essential part of it. But let's get to that eventually. So, again, we're talking about the first wave of the Klan only goes for maybe like 10 years or so, right? Eight or so, seven, eight. And in that time, what is the purpose of the Klan? That's a very important question for this reason. So the Klan in the 1860s and early 70s was established in large part to terrorize recently freed African-Americans, they would ride at night. And therefore you get, you know, torches, you get men on horseback, you get robes and hoods to cloak one's identity. Some clan members themselves of the first wave said they dressed up ridiculously. And the early outfits were different. They had different insignias and sort of mystical, there are pictures in the web. It didn't all look like what we think of today's clan, so white robes and hoods. They, they, they dressed up, they said, to scare African-Americans. And one of the reasons that some of them wore white costumes to look ghost-like because there was the um, reputation, the image, the myth that black people in the South were particularly superstitious and that you could scare them by wearing white sheets to look like a ghost. And so these men would r- run around at night on horses or, or on foot, intimidating. And they said part of the getup was you know, to look like ghosts. At any rate, they wanted to create a new order the former slaves were no longer enslaved, at least officially, although we know that economically there were ways to get people back into dependency in the company store, so to speak, sharecroppers, tenant farmers. And also, besides just keeping, quote, blacks in their place, there was the idea of setting the narrative. This quickened and morphed as of the 18, late 80s, 90s, when especially the white widows and daughters of the Confederate soldiers and officers began the Daughters of the Confederacy, I think I've got that right, and they began to erect all their statues across the South, hundreds or a couple thousand. And those statues were to set up a certain narrative. And the narrative that they especially wanted to sell and to eternalize in stone and brass and bronze was the lost cause narrative, that white Southerners were fighting for states' rights. It wasn't about slavery. It was about states having the right to leave the Union, and which is something that necessary. You have to establish in a republic or democracy, the right for states to opt out, but, you know, the right to do what? The right to sustain slavery, which does bring us, unless Mark's going to plead again to take a detour, does bring us back to the topic of today. Let me remind folks that we are speaking to Michael Lewick Troms. He is the person at the Center of Traces, Center for History and Culture. Uh, You just heard him mention a book, at home in the heartland, there's more writings and more videos and more information via Michael that we'll have on the northernspiritradio.org website, including pointing you to traces.org, their website. 
that stuff is always on nordenspiritradio.org. Come and post comments on our programs, rate them. There's a donate button so you can support us, but follow your way to these people and these organizations who are working to make the better world. And we need that so much. And fortunately, we are in a time where there's great possibilities for good and for ill. Uh, so I, I don't think that there's any revolution that doesn't include both possibilities in it. I have a friend here locally in Eau Claire from Egypt who has talked to me extensively about the thing that we call the Arab Spring, which had great potential. I mean, are we going to get democracy in Egypt? Well, as we know, throughout most countries in the Middle East, Arab Spring has not brought summer it's brought actually a pretty cold winter in most places. And Egypt is, I think, in worse shape than it was before the 2011 uprising. So the point being that when we study from history, we have a chance of learning some of the possibilities so we can proceed, as Michael Lewick Trom says, in wisdom. Wisdom is a key component to making the good choice on these bifurifications in our possibilities. And again, nordenspiritradio.org is where you'll find the links. And I also want to urge you to support the kind of community radio stations who carry these programs. We have some 40-plus stations across the U.S. who carry our shows, and we so much appreciate it when you support them because getting the word out, alternative, not filtered through the money-making apparatus or even the government limitations, it just community radio where it's volunteers typically, it's people doing great things. They survive on a shoestring and you can make that shoestring longer and more capable by donating both from your hands and from your pocket. So please support them and support Northern Spirit Radio if you can and support Trace's Center for History and Culture. Uh, One way you can do that is by providing a locale so they can visit your city, so people can avail themselves of the riches that Michael Lewick Troms and the other folks with Traces have put together. Please, there's so many good things that we can be doing. Build the community as well as dismantling the parts that don't work. Now, back to Michael. I think you wanted to talk about racism. I think so too, but as long as we're doing stationification, I appreciate Mark's help. Without people like Mark, we couldn't get our word out there. You can indeed go to our website, traces.org. There's little prompts on the right. You can go to our YouTube channel, which has all of our videos that are in the bus and, and some more. We are on Facebook, both me privately, where I can say what I want, and Traces Spoon, where I cannot say all that I want. It has to stay relatively nonpartisan and a-religious. I want to mention, though, we do have our exhibit catalog on our Amazon.com account now, and we have past books, the diaries of Midwest soldiers who were in German camps in World War II. We have the letters of the German soldiers who were in American POW camps in World War II. We have their letters. We interviewed 50 of both sets of people. We interviewed almost 100 veterans from World War II on both sides aggregately about their experiences. So do go look at our books because these are exactly the topics that we're talking about. And the one that I really want to get to in the last 15 minutes or so that remain of our hour is racism as such. Mark mentioned going to Rwanda and other examples. All genocidal experiences or mass murder or mass injustice or even institutionalized injustice that goes on over time, not just 
a flare-up, but is a way of life. Things that might appear racist aren't always only based on skin color. When Eric Gardner, who said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe in the streets of Harlem uh, on the sidewalk, if you look at the video, too many of the cops in the background who were there were men of color. I don't remember any women, but they were officers of color, brown, black, etc. And if I'm not mistaken, of the four men that uh, worked together to kill George Floyd, one was African-American, and I think another one might have been Asian-American. So what happens to the idea that all these people are the victims of racism when you point out that many of the, quote, perpetrators were also people of color? So the issue of racism becomes more complicated when you nuance it. So on an easy polemic level, you can say, oh, well, you know, racism is about skin color. It's not that easy. I'm no expert, but I'm interested in the settlement of communities, of patterns. And I remember once having a course somewhere that if you look at southern towns built before 1865, they tended to be one main street, one road, and the houses and buildings along it, and less so often a grid, a community where, you know, there's sort of proximity. And if you look at southern architecture, non-plantation owners not as often had two-story tall houses like in the Midwest and other places where you didn't have slavery as a system. In the Midwest, as I just mentioned, the towns were predominantly laid out in a grid pattern closer together with public spaces. And it had everything to do with governance. In the South, before the Civil War, you had the plantation owners calling the shots. You didn't need a big, popularly accessible county courthouse because local justice was often influenced by those who had the land and called the shots. So very different societies. And I heard once a public radio interview with a man who wrote a book about the missions of California in the 1600s, 1700s, and it was similar. There was a thing going on with the Catholic missions along the West Coast and into New Mexico and Arizona that they were a kind of plantation. They weren't raising cotton and indigo and tobacco and corn per se, but they also basically coerced or forced the natives to live together and to learn Spanish and to leave their language and to learn white people's ways and to change their religion and to work in the fields and to do leatherworking and build wagons and blacksmithing and stuff like that. So this whole question of racism becomes nuanced when you begin to think about it's actually forcing a group of people to do something they wouldn't do otherwise. I also heard something interesting recently about the police forces of the South in the past versus the police forces of the North. And certainly, when Mark asked the question earlier about the KKK of the first wave the 1860s, after all these people of color were, were freed from the plantations, white folks were terrified. I mean, they'd been afraid already for 150 or 200 years that the blacks might rebel and say, we're not going to live that way. Well, now they were legally freed and they could do what they wanted. So the Klan, riding through the night, terrorizing people, was to, quote, keep them in their place. And it is said, maybe it's true, I'm not sure, that the whole police departments of the South, historically, before World War II, tended to be different. They weren't police forces as we knew them in Milwaukee or Des Moines or Boston. In the North, police forces were more urban, they were more organized, they were more extensive, and it was about keeping order on the streets. But whether you have a voluntary police force in the South, like the KKK in that period, or to keep people in line during Jim Crow until desegregation of the 1960s. It's about keeping people in line. Betsy Hodges, who I never was a big fan of, the quite, uh, quote, white, liberal, democratic, former mayor of Minneapolis. I think just before um, Mr. Fry, 
She wrote recently in the New York Times that one of the problems in the Twin Cities are the white liberals who give out all this money through the different foundations to, you know, bus kids. And so these white liberals want to support, you know, this equal society. But in reality, if you're white in Minnesota, you have a great life. But if you're not white, not so much. And many of the numbers, the statistics for black and brown living in Minnesota do not compare well with being black or brown somewhere else in the United States. For example, maybe California or New York, I don't know. But there's a problem. There's a discrepancy between the white liberal vision of who we are in the upper Midwest and what actually happens on the, on the ground. The people of color, they just don't have the access to the property, to the capital, to job interviews, to getting a job. So part of the problem, and she is a white liberal Democrat, former mayor of Minneapolis, that this discrepancy between you know, what you say you believe and do and what really happens. And she argues, and I think she's right, one of the reasons that the Minneapolis police system was so prone to racist excesses was because basically white taxpayers in Edina and in Minneapolis and the inner ring suburbs were paying the police to keep them away from my property. So like in the South, the, quote, Knight Riders, the Klan dressed up after the Civil War, they were riding to keep them away from our women and our property and our cotton uh, warehouses and our banks and our railroad stations, keep them out. A similar thing was going on in Minneapolis and maybe to a lesser extent in St. Paul. So the whole issue of racism isn't just skin color, but it's who's in the out group, who's in the in group. And if you look at American history, the Italians came. We call them Dagos. The Irish came. We call them lots of things. Alcoholics, hooligans. The Jews came. We had the Spicks. We've had the Fags. We've had the niggers. So in the United States, we've always found a group, not necessarily black or brown, to put down at the bottom. And they're cheap labor. They're there when we want them or need them during economic cycles of boom and bust. So we have to have some sort of a police force to keep them available as a pool of labor. When times are good, like during World War II or 1950s, high employment because people can fill jobs, scooping up our ice cream at the ice cream parlor or filling our tanks at the local gas stations. When I was growing up, we still had attendants who filled your car. You didn't fill your own car. So you had cheap labor you could bring in. When people filling those jobs say, you know, we don't want to do that anymore. We want our kids to go to college. We want them to have an interview chance and get a better job. And then the mix changes. I would argue that part of the racist story in the United States has to do with empire. And I'm not a communist. But if you just look at all the imperial cities, London, Paris, Madrid, New York, they were so grand with so much wealth and so many lines of power because someone somewhere else was working for the man that built all that. The Belgian Congo, brutal, merciless, killing people, putting them in camps and saying, if you don't go out and tap enough rubber uh, today, we'll, we'll kill your wife and kids. All right? And they'll stay behind this barbed wire until you come back with X number of kilos of, of rubber. That's just one example. There's so many. But Europeans, wherever we went, found someone to force to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise. And this is the problem. It's not just your skin color, because actually in America today, it's possible to be in the in-group and be dark-skinned. Mm-hmm. We saw that with the war in Afghanistan. We saw it in the war with Iraq. I mean, Afghanistan is debatable after 9-11. But with Iraq, there was no yellow cake. It was about something different. It was about resources. And we had to have our people go over and put their people in check through intimidation, through guns, through patrols. Someone somewhere has to pay for our way of life. 
you know, how dare they have our oil under their sand, right? With empire, you almost always, always have to have a war, and a war is organized force. I'm going to wage a war and force you when I win this skirmish that we're calling a war, then you will give me your crops, you will give me your gold bars you've hidden under the bedroom floor, you will give me your children to come to my factories. I'll give you an example. In German, and English is largely a Germanic language, in the Third Reich, we all know the word Third Reich, what does it mean? It's the Third Empire. The Second Empire was under the Kaiser of the 1870s onward, and the First Reich, if I'm not mistaken, goes back to Karl the Great, the Holy Roman Empire. The word German Reich, the word, also means to be rich. And it's not a coincidence that the word for empire in German means to become rich. That's what an empire is. You put up a border, you expand it, and then you siphon off the riches of the conquered peasants, of the conquered princes from the other side. You stretch out your borders, you expand the Reich, and then you start plundering the riches. Same way with the word soldier in German, Krieger. Krieger means to get, literally to kriegen, I will, Krieger dich, I will get you. And I'm a Krieger, and a warrior is a Krieg. So even the word war means to go get. So literally, if we wage wars, we are going to get booty. And it's not even enough to talk about racism. You have to talk about empire. It's not enough to talk about, talk about empire, to talk about war. It's not even enough to talk about war. You have to talk about force. I will come and I will force you with my bigger guns and my bigger armies and my bigger horses and my bigger sabers and I will fight you until you succumb or I kill you, and then I'll do what I want with your territory, with your capital. And this brings back to the topic of slavery in general, and we need to go back. So the Romans had slaves. Now, some white liberal academics will argue, oh, well, you know, Romans and slavery, it wasn't based on skin color. It was a better slavery. It was just, you know, vanquished populations from North Africa or from the Middle East or from Northern Europe. They would enslave the Germanic wild people up, you know, up in the Rhineland. Well, they were forcing these people to go to Rome, to Pompeii, to wherever, and to work for them. And you could earn your freedom, perhaps. You could even become a slaveholding person. If you fast forward to the 1500s, Arabs were running the slave trade of Northern Africa and the Mediterranean. One of the reasons we fought the war, the Young Republic, with on the Barbary Coast, because they were capturing sailors on American ships and enslaving them. There were white slaves, people who were enslaved, who had been sailors on the Mediterranean or on the Atlantic. Well, this wouldn't work. And so we sent our ships and we blasted the hell out of them. So it was Arabs in the modern era who helped set up the European slave trade. And the European slave trade was all about empire, to go off to Africa above all, but other places. There were People who, quote, voluntarily went from what's now Malaysia, Indonesia, they were sent to Southern Africa by the British. There are people from Southern India who were sent to Southern Africa to work in the fields and the mines. So they were sent voluntarily, not so voluntarily. If you Google in Australia, the people from Papua New Guinea and other Pacific islands who were basically lured or brought uh, through coercion to Australia to work the sugar plantations, it's the same story, just different location and different names. So if we want to talk about racism, we can't change the situation unless we admit many of us have a vested interest in perpetuating the system. Are you going to give up your cozy house in the suburbs? Are you going to give up your nice job? Are you going to really let those people live next door? Are you going to let them take your kids' place at that business? So if we want to stop racism, we have to talk about forcing people and stop forcing people to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. We have to learn to give people opportunities 
and real chances at betterment, but we can't force them. We have to work with them, not overpower them. And that's the central problem. There are so many problems that need to be addressed. And I'm really thankful for you, Michael Lewick Troms, providing an overview that will be helpful. I, I worry that in the United States, we'll focus on one small subsection so that we won't you know, it's whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> you hit one problem, it pops up in another. Unless you have the overview, it's hard to know how you get to a real solution. I do want to step back and review uh, a little bit more. You started in on the various waves of racism that we've had in this country. You talked about the KKK immediately following the Civil War You've talked not quite as concretely or as definitively about the second wave, which happened in the early 1900s, 1920s, going in there. You also speak in your video that is on the traces.org website. You talk about the third wave. Could you say a little bit about that? Because, of course, that comes home to us. We know about George Floyd now and many other people. You've mentioned a couple of them who have been victims of racism today. But the KKK, the resurgence of white supremacy, the third wave that you speak of, when does that start? So the second wave sort of died out as World War II expanded to include the United States. Also, the end of the Great Depression. During the Depression, people had more to worry about than just intimidating their neighbors of whatever background. But certainly by the time World War II uh, was in, in full force, people were busy with other things. So the second wave sort of died out the end of the 30s by the end of World War II. It depends on who you are and how you're counting, but the third wave began to arise late 40s in the 50s. You have sympathetic organizations like the John Birch Society, which I remember well, too well growing up, was active. There have been other groups. I'm not as much an expert on the third wave. What historians try to do is find some distance from the subject. The third wave is still among us. You can look at internationally, there are different faces of this. Uh, the Front National in France with uh, Marine Le Pen, the AfD, Alternative for Deutschland in Germany, uh, what's translated the alternative for Germany, it's a political party, but it's a, a house where even AfD is now kicking out some of the members who are being too far right to, to being too Nazi, um, which in Germany we don't accuse each other of very lightly. It's a, it's a huge thing if you say someone's a Nazi. It's, if you do it unfounded, you can actually get fined or put in jail. I'm not as much an expert in the situation in the United States. I would invite you, Mark, to have a guest speaker who's much better informed. All I will say at this point is certainly there are people – around, underfoot at the moment, who would like to exploit the current instability and explosiveness for their own purposes. And these are people who don't want to expand love and understanding and domestic harmony. I can't say a lot more about it at this point. I mean, you know more than I do about the third wave. Well, it's important to realize that the KKK, the white nationalism, the racism is never an issue of the past. There's always tendrils of it coming into the future in all countries around the world. I appreciate you mentioning what's happening in France and in Germany, because sometimes in the U.S. we want to think that we're the only ones with this problem. And we see the world domination issue is only a U.S. thing. But, you know, you only have to go back 70 years when U.S. was not the top force in the world to understand that the racism, and again, racism is an insufficient word, because as you mentioned, in the second wave, it was really Catholics who were 
in the upper Midwest, the primary victims of the KKK. So there is always someone you want to hold down, spit on, in, in some way victimized in order to have some benefits for yourself. Based on what you're saying, I do. Uh, it does occur to me, I would mention the five-star movement in Italy, which is also vently against refugees or immigrants. In Britain, of course, Brexit was fueled by xenophobic impulses. What you see worldwide, also in Australia, where the Australian government, at least previously, was merciless about putting so-called boat people, refugees of the high seas, not in Australian camps. They're putting them in camps, I think, in, again, Papua New Guinea or um, you know East Timor somewhere, but they're putting them offshore with no chance to come onto Australian soil. So one sees worldwide that in predominantly white cultures, there's this backlash. And I think basically it's a fear that whitey's losing it. You know, whites have been at the top of the international pecking order for 500 years with our slavery, with international tra- uh, global uh, commerce, with our uh, trade lines, with railroad and telegraph, later telephone, now satellite cables, white folks have been the pushing force of much of that. And we have felt entitled, oh, sort of like the Steve King motto of the world, if we have bestowed this to the world, you know, we've earned to stay at the top and to keep administering it. That's passing. Just from birth rates and death rates, white folks won't stay the dominant force in the world. And then economically, the Chinese have been both uh, frog jumping over us, and the Indians would have tried, but they're stuck in their other problems in India, but things are changing. And I think a lot of people don't even understand this on a rational or conscious level, but they just feel in their gut that, oh, I, as a white person, I stand to have my comfort and my privileges eroded or even taken away. And I think this is why we see so many voters who are voting based on um, xenophobic and race-related topics like build the wall. It's all about keeping, quote, them out. So you can learn about this by listening to my interviews. There's a previous one three months back with Michael Lewick Troms of Traces Center for History and Culture. You can get their books. And again, traces.org is their website. You can get any number of books, watch the YouTube videos online, and even better, and this is the best, and we need to give people the dates and times as, as best we can, there's going to be a visit to the Busseum to many areas of the Midwest where Michael will be conducting the bus. Evidently, he's a reasonably good driver because he's been able to wear out three buses so far. So, when are you coming to the Midwest and where will you be? What dates? What, as, as near as we can say right now, it's an unfolding schedule, I know. Yeah, because Corona has basically shredded all of our lovely plans. We are already confirmed to be noon to 6 p.m. Friday the 14th of August in Prairie de Chien, down by the river, sponsored by the Library and Chamber of Commerce. Then we hope to be on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus Saturday and Sunday, the 15th and 16th of August. And we're hoping to be, we're talking now with the Sun Prairie Library for Monday morning, the 17th of August, and then the p.m. of the 17th through the night of the 20th in Milwaukee. We're trying to find a place to set up our bus during the Democratic Convention nearby to reach people who are going there, either as delegates or workers or journalists. And then after that, we're looking at going north to the direction of Green Bay, Wausau, and we hope to be with Mark and other uh, Quaker-friendly people on Sunday, the 23rd of August. From there, it's our plan, and this will soon be posted, to go the direction of Duluth, because one of the stories in our white cancer KKK story on our bus, both the panels and in the presentation, you can see it 
uh, YouTube is about the lynching of three African-American circus workers in 1920 in Duluth when a, a blonde young woman claimed to have been raped by one of them. Our own doctor couldn't substantiate that. Then we'll be arching down, hopefully through the Quakers of Brainerd, to St. Cloud, and then to the Twin Cities the weekend of August 28th, 29th, and 30th. And after Labor Day, I don't know. It'll depend on you people who want to invite us. Our previous marketing concept doesn't work because in the olden days, we'd call libraries, museums, universities months in advance and book so they had time to do publicity and to have their boards vote on the funding. Well, there isn't time for that. So now, unfortunately, we've got to turn to this crazy thing, crowdfunding, and we really need you good people to step forward and say, wow, we think this is a valuable resource. How can we help to make this happen? I'm not salaried, so my time is sort of not a factor, but there are other costs. We can't get around eating once in a while. It'd be nice to have a shower once in a while. <coughs> yes, please. And we do need some fuel for the engine, et cetera, et cetera. So folks, if you want to reach Christine, her address is staff at traces.org. That's S-T-A-F-F at traces, like the outline of something.org. And with that, I'll let you go back to Mark and we'll bring this happy show to a conclusion. Yes. Again, we've had Michael Lewick Troms here. Uh, as he just said, the website is traces.org. The links on nordenspiritradio.org. Listen also to my interview with him three months ago. Uh, also on our website, we'll have links there for you. Thank you so much, Michael, for your work. I look forward to being able to welcome you back to the Midwest uh, again after a friendship of 35 years. I so appreciate your depth of work, your passion, your ongoing support. I think it's so important to not only be able to do good work, but to be sustained in it so you can do it long-term, lifetime. Uh, and you seem to have totally put your life at service of the good. And I appreciate that so much and that you joined me again today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Again, the links for Traces on Northern Spirit Radio I'm sure we'll have Michael back again before way too long because he's always digging up wonderful historical things that have complete relevance to today. Thanks so much again for that, Michael, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. <laughs>